All right. Well, we're going to continue on, obviously, in our survey of church history. And today I thought it might be helpful, at least uh, as, as an opening portion, to really sort of put our minds uh, around some, some anchor points of, of time. Um, we've been, I, I've done a little bit of, uh, I've, ma- I've notated a few different uh, dates and so forth as we've gone through the study, but um, it, it, it kind of occurred to me that there's, there's quite a bit of time that passes, uh, particularly in the book of Acts, um, once you get past the first couple of years, and it's kind of difficult to kind of know where you are chronologically and know how much time's passed. And sometimes when you think about the, the understanding of the passage of time and how that helps us to kind of have a sense of what might have been going on or what might have been accomplished or, or how we need to kind of view a particular period of history or particular events or uh, what people might have been going through or experiencing, it's helpful for us to have sort of time span um, uh, understanding in mind. I would just kind of use a, a very common uh, type of illustration. I mean, you think about someone who maybe spent a certain, if, if someone went to uh, a place for an overnight trip, that has just that time frame, they went somewhere overnight, would say something to us about what they were able to accomplish, what that might have been like, what kind of associations they might have had. Whereas if we say that someone went to a place and they stayed there for 15 years, just that different designation of time has a whole bunch of different possible implications. And so when you come to particularly any kind of historical narrative, but specifically to Luke and how this sort of flows out from the standpoint of time, we can get a little bit lost in terms of how, how much time has passed. Because it, it, the way it reads is it almost is like a, you feel like it's going from one thing to the next to the next to the next to the next. And really, there's blocks of time that are passing that you really don't necessarily pick up on, um, specifically in the narrative. So I thought we'd start by, by kind of framing that up a little bit more for us, uh, and then we'll kind of continue on uh, in the study as we move through the first 30 years of the church's history as recorded in the book of Acts. We started off our, 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 this section, really, in, in the first part of the book of Acts, really thinking about the first couple of years, starting from Acts chapter 1 and 2, the ascension of Christ, his commissioning of the church, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all the way through Acts, the first part of Acts chapter 8, you're really only covering about two years of time. And so, you know, that takes you through a range of events, uh, all, you know, all the way through the, the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, um, and really leading up to um, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, as we see that happening in, in Acts chapter 9. But you have this, this span of time that's only a couple of years, but when you get past these first several chapters, time begins to move much more quickly, or I guess the coverage of events is, is spanning a larger breadth of time. So the second sort of block that we, we carved out and that we were actually in right now is this period of time from around AD 32, again, some overlap there from the, the end of the last section to where we're starting here, um, the, 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 the conversion of the Apostle Paul and on, on, ongoing. All the way through AD 49, which is the, culminates with the Jerusalem Council that we'll look at in Acts chapter 15. So to kind of put that with a little more, uh, add a little more detail to that, 
In Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost as one key marker, and that's about A.D. 30. So just kind of thinking of how we're launching this, this new move of God and the, and the birth of the, the church and the new covenant is really, you know, right at the time, the same year, if you will, of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is, we've, we've targeted or we've pegged at about A.D. 30. There's some debate over whether it's a different time than that, but most, most uh, folks that, that I've looked at and feel comfortable um, settling on, it's a time of about eighty thirty, and that, that really lines up. And we did some sort of justification of that early on where we backed our way into that date and, and kind of recognized that there are other reference points um, that help us land on that particular date. So that's kind of our starting point. When you get to the stoning of Stephen through, you know, through Acts chapter 1 and 2 all the way to Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, uh, you're getting to about around A.D. 32. And so the same is true for the, for the uh, conversion of Paul about the same time. Again, nothing specific. We don't have you know, May 1st or whatever. We don't have those specific dates. But you're, you're looking at around the same time frame. So again, we're in this compressed period of time in the first several chapters, the first major sort of block or section of chapters with a lot of events taking place uh, early on in the, in the history of the church that are recorded there in Luke. But then you have time starting to spread a little bit. Uh, you have in Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul's escape from Damascus that's recorded there. So you go from Saul's conversion at the very beginning of the chapter in the ro- on the road to Damascus. We kind of filled in some gaps there. Um, we know that there was uh, a, a, a period of time that was spent in Damascus because it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 19, and for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And anytime Luke says that kind of thing, he's talking about a, a breadth of time for many days, for some days, is not just you know, a, a long weekend in, in the vernacular of Luke's um, history and his chronology here. So we know that time passed, but we, if you'll recall, for those of you that were here, we, we went to Galatians chapter 1 to kind of fill in some gaps because the Apostle Paul provides us a little more um, help there. We know that, for example, from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, that, that the Apostle Paul spent time in Arabia, where he was, in effect, discipled by Christ himself for about three years, sort of equivalent to the three-year ministry period and, and discipleship period that the original 12 apostles, 12 disciples had with Jesus, you have sort of a, a, a mirror, a complement to that, where, where uh, the Apostle Paul is receiving instruction as he's in Arabia. It's possible that he was back and forth from Damascus and Arabia during this period of time. It wasn't as though he went into some kind of monastic commune kind of you know, arrangement or something, but we just know that he gives us that, that feedback in, in Galatians. We also know that he made what we identified as kind of a secret trip uh, up to Jerusalem. Um, well, it it's, depends on how, on how you view it. Acts says up to Jerusalem. It's really down geographically because it's south, but it's up in the sense that you go up to Jerusalem on a, an elevated uh, plateau. So, so they, I use the same terminology. You went down south but up elevation-wise to Jerusalem Really, and what, was a, what he calls, uh, what you have to understand is, was a secret trip because we know that he, he went back to Jerusalem and that's when he was fully introduced to the church. And we know that that second trip to Jerusalem resulted in uh, him having to actually leave Jerusalem because he stirred up the, the, 
the Jews, uh, and, and they were wanting to come after him, so he had to even flee on the second trip. But there was this initial trip that he references in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, where he only met with Peter and James during that time. And then he returns back to Damascus, and then we see in Acts chapter 9, Luke kind of picks it up in verses 23 to 25, and he says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Paul. And so you have this, this account of him escaping through a hole in the wall and being let down uh, from, in a basket and opening in the wall, and that's kind of around AD 37. Fortunately, we have uh, an Instagram post of that, and this is exactly what it looked like. <laughs> Um, there's the basket that perfectly fit Paul as he's sitting there and, and being lowered in the basket. I just had to throw that in um, as, a, as a, a good visual for you guys so you can really attach um, the words of Scripture to our image-driven minds now. This is exactly what it looked like, a representation of it. But again, just to give you that, that reference point, you know, you're going from the spread of time, but the amount of verses that you're covering is not that much. So you're, you're going from almost eight chapters of just two years to like five years in like 20 chapters, 20 verses of one chapter kind of thing. So again, just kind of understanding um, this pace and this, this spread of time. And of course, this really gets us into or really escalates this major transition that we began to talk about over the last few weeks. Uh, really, this major transition where we, we emphasized this last week when you get to Acts chapter 10, this is really highlighted for us, but you're having this transition from what I've termed from Judaism to Christianity. Really, what I'm, what I'm implying is that you're, you're this transition from a Jewish-centric understanding of the gospel to a full-blown, for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, this gospel is for, is directed to. It's, it, it spreads the scope and, and understanding of that. Um, and so the focus shifts from a very Judaistic or Jewish-centric focus of the gospel to a broad, for the whole world, to the ends of the earth understanding. And this, this really is the center, centerpiece of Acts chapter 10. We talked about this at length week before last. Um, and, and when Peter... Is, um, has the, the th- three visions. Really, it's the same vision three different times of the blanket with the, all the different animals and reptiles on it. And they're, they're re- it's a representation of what is unclean or common, it's, he says there in the passage. And, and he hears the voice from heaven, do not call what I have made clean, unclean. And so you have this, this coinciding with an angel appearing to Cornelius, saying, send for this man Peter to come to you, and you have this encounter where Peter goes to Caesarea, where Cornelius lives, and you have Cornelius as a representative of the Gentiles, him and his household, believing, coming to faith in Christ, but the, the seminal event in that encounter, and, and you see Peter having to kind of reconcile all of this, he's perplexed, he's pondering before he goes there, then he sees what's happening, and he's just really blown away by the whole thing, but you see the, the Holy Spirit coming upon those Gentiles in the similar manner as what happened at Pentecost. And this is a seminal event in the move of God and the spread of the gospel even to the Gentiles. Um, this basically takes place roughly a year later, around AD 38, where you have Peter's encounter with Cornelius. So just think of this. Pentecost happens in AD 30. You're all the way now eight years into this when you get to Peter's encounter with Cornelius and his household. 
And of course, this represents what is, it's an understatement to say that it's a major turning point um, in the history of the church. This, this really is, is a tipping point, if you will. Um, the church continues to grow rapidly. It continues to expand rapidly. However, that expansion and growth comes predominantly through the conversion of Gentiles rather than through the conversion of Jews. And we talked about how the Jerusalem church, when we profiled this early on, you had this multiplication effect that was taking place. I mean, 3,000 were added to their number on day one, and then day by day, and then you have a reference to 5,000 people. So you have this rapid expansion in the first two years of the church's history, and it's Jewish people who are basically in Jerusalem, and they're all coming to faith in Christ. This represents a massive turning point where that, that Jewish-centric even uh, identification or demographic, if you will, of the church uh, begins to shift and becomes predominantly growing and expanding through the conversion of Gentiles. Now, what is really um, significant, too, about this and for us to note and, and really to just continue to wonder and, and be awed by and encouraged by the sovereign purpose and unmatched wisdom of God in using Peter for this event. We already know from Acts chapter 9, before Acts chapter 10, we already know that Jesus himself said, he said this to Ananias, who would go to Paul and, and heal his blindness. He was sent by Christ himself to Paul in Damascus to heal his blindness after this, this encounter with the, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He says to Ananias, this, this Paul, this Saul, will be a messenger, an apostle to the Gentiles. We know already that that has been declared. And yet, this particular encounter where the gospel is introduced to the Gentiles and really the seminal uh, stamp, the seminal seal from God Himself at sending the Holy Spirit onto the Gentiles in a similar manner as what the Jews experienced in Pentecost is a massive... Um, um, stamp of approval, if you will, from God himself, and Peter is the one who's at the forefront of that. Peter, identified even by the Apostle Paul in Galatians as one of the pillars of the church. Peter, the clearly identified leader at the forefront of the original 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And Peter, ultimately the one who even the Apostle Paul identifies in Galatians as really the, the apostle to the, the, the circumcision, the apostle to, primarily to the Jews. Nevertheless, God in his wisdom uses Peter to go to Cornelius and be used to bring the gospel to him so that, 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 that God can send the Holy Spirit and put his stamp on this. This is a, this is a divine stamp of, of God's blessing, uh, this, this unique baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, on Cornelius and his household. Um, the, 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 the effect here is that Peter then goes in Acts chapter 11 and he reports all of this to the apostles and leaders in Jerusalem. This is why this is so important. If this would have been someone outside the original 12 or someone who wasn't already established for, for eight years now, I mean, originally... Acts chapter 2, who stands up and delivers the first sermon? It's the Apostle Peter. All the way through up to this point, Peter and then John as, as sort of a, a, a sidekick, if you will, um, they're at the forefront of ministry and the forefront of leadership here. So it's Peter who goes to Cornelius, and then he comes back and reports because word is spreading that, the, that, that Gentiles 
are receiving the word of God, it says there in Acts chapter 11. And so he comes back to Jerusalem to report in what has taken place. If this would have been someone outside the original 12, or maybe even someone other than someone like Peter, there might not have been the same kind of reception to this kind of message. In other words, Peter carried, carried a certain amount of authority. Even though Peter, by all accounts in, in the way that Luke records this, and what we see even happening beyond this that, that the Apostle Paul references in Galatians where they have that, that encounter where, where Paul has to confront Peter. We'll probably talk about that in the future a little bit. But, but Peter is not gung-ho Gentile. He, he's just not. And he, he's, he's reticent from the outset. And then he, has, he does a little bit of backsliding after the fact in terms of his treatment of the Gentiles, even as an apostle. So if it would have been anybody else, it might not have been received in the same way. But God in his wisdom uses Peter for this task um, to, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and the, and the seal of, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Peter's report takes place in Acts chapter 11, about A.D. 40. So, again, we can't go from Acts chapter 10 and assume that, you know, the next day Peter goes to Jerusalem and there he is reporting to everybody. You've got several years that pass before he goes and offers up this report um, to those in, uh, in Jerusalem. Excuse me, I didn't mean to go forward yet. Um, we know that, uh, again, we know that time passes here uh, in Acts chapter 10. Um, between Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, the opening of Acts chapter 11, because in, at the end of Acts chapter 10, verse 48, it says, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is Cornelius and his household. This is Peter commanding them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So he, he remains there in Caesarea for a period of time, ministering, discipling, teaching, instructing, and that kind of thing, uh, just fulfilling his apostolic duty there in Caesarea. We know that there's time that passes before you turn the page in the text to Acts chapter 11. But, of course, he returns, and you can see this, again, we talked about this a little bit, this major shift that's underway. Um, we're talking about a decade after Pentecost now, but you have the, the, the party of the circumcision, they're called. Um, the Jews who are committed to the gospel plus circumcision plus the law of Moses as the means of salvation. That's really the essence of the circumcision party. And they confront uh, Peter right out of the gate saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? That's, that's the welcome back to Jerusalem for Peter. The, the question is, you did what? So even after all this time, are you getting a sense of this time frame? This wasn't like, Boom, 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 boom. Now we're all one big church, Jews and Gentiles together in a matter of a few minutes. This is a long time that's passing here. He returns. He's confronted by this circumcision party. I keep changing things accidentally here. Yeah. Um, here we go. Um, and so he, he reports what happens, and this is the key element here, too, to understand what significant uh, part this is playing in the, in the move of God uh, amongst his people. You see in chapter 11, Peter reporting what happened, and it's almost a verbatim accounting of what you've already seen in Acts chapter 10. In other words, his report 
to those leaders, those apostles and those leaders and the elders at the, in Jerusalem is this is what happened, then this is what happened, and then this is what happened, and then this is what happened, and this is what God did. I mean, it's just almost verbatim. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a formal report is being delivered. This is a seminal moment in the history of the church, and it cannot be overstated. He tells them, again, in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, he's reporting to the, to the, the leaders in Jerusalem. He says, I began to, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Just as on us at the beginning. That is a massively loaded statement that Peter delivers to those gathered there in Jerusalem. He's saying, we're no different than them, they're no different than us. God has blessed them in the same way he blessed us. God has sealed their participation in his work in the same way that he sealed it with us. And then he says in verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this particular juncture, AD 40, represents a major, major transition point. Uh, for in the life of the church. And, and for us to understand that it was the better part of a decade before Gentiles became believers and participants in this work of God. Almost a full decade. That kind of stunned me when I first started putting all this together in my mind. Because the way you read in Acts, it just feels like you know it's just happening in rapid succession. I mean, this is actually happening in real time, back then, as fast as I can read it. I mean, that's how my mind starts working. You know, I kind of deceive myself. I mean, if I can read it this fast, surely it happened this fast. Of course, that's silly. But, you know, you, you, get, you, you get the time compressed in your mind. But this is a really uh, significant uh, recognition on my part that I, I was just sort of stunned by this, that, that we're talking about almost a full decade. Major, major turning point. There's also another transition that we need to kind of start to identify here. And you, you see this um, beginning to take place at the end of Acts chapter 11, after Peter reports everything to the, the leaders in Jerusalem of what happened with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, the Gentiles, you start to see a transition uh, of, of ministry and uh, the life of the church. It's a transition from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch becomes a major, major uh, city, a major point of, of um, activity uh, in the life and the history of the church. And it actually extends well beyond uh, the pages of Acts, we'll, we'll discover. Um, but what, what happens there is you see that this church in Antioch begins to form. The gospel was brought to Antioch at some point after the persecution begins following Stephen's martyrdom. We know that it says there in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that, Christian, that, that Jews, Jews were, went to Antioch after they scattered, scattered after the persecution that unfolded, interestingly enough, by the Apostle Paul, right, or Saul, not the Apostle Paul at that time, by Saul. Saul's leading the charge on this persecution, so they are scattered. We know that, that there are some, some Jews that went up there. Interestingly enough, when you look there at the very beginning, 
uh, excuse me, at the end of, of Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So you still have this narrow view by those who were scattered and who went up to Antioch. But, it says in verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The Hellenists or those who were Gentiles. It doesn't say Hellenist Jews. These are not Jewish people who were from outside Jerusalem who are often referred to as Hellenist Jews. These are just Hellenists. These are those who are outside Judaism. This is another term for for really Gentiles. So you, you know that the gospel has, has arrived in Antioch, and you also know that a large number of Gentiles are coming to Christ, because um, in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, it tells us explicitly, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we know that the work of God really begins to take off amongst the Gentiles in Antioch, following this encounter with Cornelius. Um, and this is probably in the early 40s that this is taking place, early 40s AD, that, that this, is this, this growth and this emergence of Antioch is taking place. Um, the apostles, we know, hear about this, and they send Barnabas down to Antioch. Uh, we see this in, in verse 22. The report, of the, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas basically goes down and begins to pastor and shepherd these new believers in this growing church. We know that many more come to uh, faith in Christ there under Barnabas' ministry. We see this in verses 23 to 24 of Acts chapter 11. Many more come uh, to Christ under his ministry. Uh, it becomes a large, flourishing ministry. Eventually, the apostle, uh, Barnabas uh, goes to find Paul in Tarsus and bring him back. So Paul at this particular time is in Tarsus. So this is probably around AD 45. So you've got sort of early, early 40s um, uh, where um, the church is growing in Antioch, primarily Gentile believers. Um, the apostles probably send Barnabas down there around AD 42. And then you have around AD 45, again, three years or so passing, the church continuing to grow. And then they, they, uh, Barnabas goes to get Paul and Tarsus and bring him back to help him shepherd this growing church. And, and this is actually where the disciples are first beginning to, uh, begun to call, be called Christians. We see that in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Um, again, just making note that this, this growth of the Gentile believing community, it takes place well after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it begins to grow uh, between you know, 10 and 15 years after Pentecost. So we're talking about quite a bit of time that passes uh, during this period. You have sort of an interlude in Acts chapter 12 uh, where you see um, um, Luke recording the, the martyrdom of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the first, uh, the first of the original 12 who are m- martyred, ki- killed by King Herod by a sword. Um, you have uh, the, the account of Peter being arrested as a result of Herod. Herod discovered that people were pleased, the Jews were pleased with this martyrdom. And so he went ahead and arrested Peter. Uh, and you have this account there in Acts chapter 12 where Peter 
uh, is released from jail by an angel of the Lord. Um, and you see the whole account there of him going to uh, find uh, the people, uh, the believers there, and, and they're really stunned that he's, he's been released. Um, there's just a whole sort of interesting account there. But it's, it's just sort of almost like a, a, an interlude. And then you get to this part down toward the end um, where it speaks of uh, the, the death of Herod and, and what happens there. But then the story sort of picks up again in Acts chapter 13. So from time to time you'll see Luke um, insert sort of general historical anchor points in his narrative. And then he'll kind of pick up the flow of the story uh, once again um, after that. So this is kind of one of those interludes where you have these, these accounts that don't really relate extensively to broad sweeping you know, church movement kinds of things, but it's just inc- incidents that are worthy of note. Uh, that Luke sort of interjects into the narrative here. Then you have Acts chapter 13, and this is where things really start to kick off because this is where we start going on mission. This is where Paul's missionary journeys begin uh, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Acts chapter 13 and 14 encompasses the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey that he undertakes with Barnabas. So, again, a lot of time is passing. A lot of uh, events are taking place. But now we're sort of on this new runway, if you will, where the church is really exploding in the Gentile world. The gospel is really uh, spreading amongst the Gentiles. And so you can imagine what the offset to that is going to be, what we've seen it before. What do you think the offset to that spread of the gospel amongst the Gentiles is going to be for the Apostle Paul and his companions? What's a likely assumption there? There's not going to be people who are all together happy about that, right? The, the Jews, the, Jewish un, the unbelieving Jews, are going to become more and more hostile as, as this moves forward. Jealousy is going to become the operating principle in their hearts. Um, they are jealous because God is at work in the lives, bringing salvation to the Gentiles. We're talking about a very, very sinister shade of, of wickedness there, when, when we become envious of the work of God and others, right? Think about that as just a principle, as a principle of conviction for us. When we see God's blessing in others, we can easily be led into envy and even jealousy of God's goodness being manifested in the lives of other people. And that's what happened with um, the unbelieving Jews. Of course, there were many Jews who were also coming to faith in Christ along with that um, I say many, I mean, I don't know how many because the, the emphasis really does become more focused on, on Gentiles, but we know that there are Jewish believers um, who, are, who are walking along with the Gentiles in all of this. But there are many, many Jews who are uh, resistant to the gospel and who become hostile. And we see this playing out uh, particularly in the accounts of Paul's various missionary endeavors. So in Acts chapter 13 and 14... We're going to touch on this a little bit, and we're going to kind of probably dig a little bit deeper on this next time. We're on our way to the downhill slope to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Um, So when we get to Acts chapter 15, we'll probably settle there for a little bit too, because there's some really important doctrinal matters that have ramifications that spread through all church history and have implications for us even now that we want to just kind of unpack a little bit. But, But some things to just kind of note here as an introductory point for this first missionary journey you really see at the, in the very opening verses of Acts chapter 13, in fact, if you want to turn there, you see this, this 
principle of being set apart and sent out. This to me is, is just striking because it, it really highlights this important principle of, of accountability and the importance of the local church. Now, just to kind of help us see this in context, the Apostle Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus by a vision of the resurrected Christ. He was called into this apostleship by Christ himself as one who's being sent to the Gentiles. He was then discipled by Christ in the Arabian desert. He was given the ability to perform signs and wonders to put a stamp of God's divine approval on what message he was bringing. This has already been manifested in the life of Paul. And yet, you do not see the Apostle Paul operating like he is some freewheeling, supremely anointed, I'm the man and I'm heading out to do you know, my missionary work now. That's not what you see happening. And I love this about what, how Luke has recorded this. In the first few verses of Acts chapter 13, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's a lot going on there. You can just That gives you a sense of the vibrancy and the, and the strength and even possibly the size. You've got these leaders and prophets and teachers that are there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You have this combination, this intersection of spiritual calling and church commissioning. It, 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 to me, it is a great testimony about how missions is done, about how missionaries really function. It, ser- it serves as sort of a model for missions in that missionaries are called by God, but they're commissioned by a, a local fellowship where there's accountability where there's a level of of mutual submission under the authority of God and under Christ as the head. We're not free agents operating in these special gifts that God's given us. We're going to see examples of this even further as we go along, even in this first missionary journey, where you, you you just don't have with these apostles, and with the Apostle Paul in particular, even with all these special gifts that they've been given in this very unique time in the life in the history of the church and the work of God, you see no sign of them operating in, in sort of separated autonomy or in sort of pride and, and self-aggrandizement for what they're, they're being able to accomplish in the work of God or what their special calling looks like. You see quite the opposite of that over and over again. And it is such a refreshing vision. And you can contrast that. And, and actually, this to me serves as a great sort of litmus test, a great discernment test when we start looking at and evaluating people who are, are in some way calling us to a certain amount of submission to their leadership. There are people, there are examples over and over and over again throughout church history and even our day and time today who basically, when you start to really evaluate what the heart and thrust of their message and their ministry is, it is very much about them. It is very much about them using whatever talents or abilities God's given them to, 
to prop them up and to create a following that they can sort of relish in. And you do not see anything like that amongst uh, the apostles, and particularly the Apostle Paul, uh, as he's going out and, and really being used of God in unbelievable ways, striking ways. It's a great, it's a great um, example. They're set apart by the Spirit and sent out by the church. And that's a great, a great way to understand um, ministry and missions. You also see developing um, throughout this account in 13 and 14 a, a real clear pattern for ministry. Um, it, it begins in the synagogues where even though the Apostle Paul knows he's been commissioned as the Apostle to the Gentiles, he, got, he goes uh, to the synagogue first and brings the message of the gospel to, um, to the Jews wherever he goes. So, for example, you see there in verse 4 of chapter 13, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews. So that's kind of what you see repeating over and over again. They go to the synagogues, and you see a varying pattern of what might happen after they arrive in the synagogue and begin to teach. In some cases, they are received, and there's people who are receptive to the message and want to hear more. But in other cases, they don't get much time with that at all before there are Jews who are totally resistant to the message and and begin to to do things to quiet them or to shun them or to um, really even bring harm to them or to rid them from their presence in their, their town or their city or their synagogue. So you see this pattern developing, and then they go from there to the Gentiles. They always start in the synagogue with the Jews, and then they go and begin to proclaim the message to the Gentiles. You see this taking place uh, here early on as well. Um, if you go down to, so for example, they, they go to Antioch and Pisidia. They start off there um, um, on the Sabbath day in verse 14. They went down... Uh, on the Sabbath day, and they went in the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people to say, uh, say it. And so they, 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 Paul gets up and begins to deliver this very compelling message, but you get down uh, on as the, as the account goes, and you see that there are those that are interested and that there are those who want to reject the message, and they, they say, well, we're going to turn our attention now to the Gentiles. Um, and they ultimately have to leave because the, the people are being incited uh, to, to stand against them by the Jews who are rejecting the message. You see this pattern over and over again, down at the very end of Acts chapter 13, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you, you have this sort of the similar pattern of, Jews in the synagogues to Gentiles to either being run out of town or seeing it's time to move on to the next place. Most of the time, there's, they're, they're being forced out or there's some kind of, of encounter or violence or something that leads to their, um, their departure to, to the next place. That's often the, the pattern that you see. Um, the other thing that you see developing is this focus on leadership. Um, you see this... Uh, I guess down um, oh, where is it? Is it an iconium?
Yeah, down at, uh, sorry, I'm, I, I didn't have a note for this. Uh, verse, chapter 14, verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had, been, they had believed. So again, another part of the ministry pattern would be for them to develop leaders. So it wasn't the kind of thing where they were kind of blowing into town and delivering their message and then blowing out of town. They were really interested in developing leaders to be able to serve and minister and shepherd in that area and in that region and in that town and in that community. And that was a part of the the ministry pattern as well. So again, when you think about missions and a model of missions, this is kind of our model of missions as well. You want to really be focused on um, the, the, the localized ministry with the people who are a part of that community. And so we have a, a great focus in our missions efforts here and the missionaries that we support on leadership development of people who are local to that community. And it's a model that you see here uh, with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on this first mis- missionary journey. Um, just a little, little hint about the geographic scope. Again, I'm just sort of skimming the surf- surface right now. Um, basically, you have the, the journey covering about nine cities in roughly five regions. It kind of depends upon you know, how the regions were actually divided up. Um, but but it's, a, it's a pretty big scope, but it's not the biggest scope. We'll see a much bigger scope as we see a future, the, the second missionary journey in particular. Um, but let me just kind of show you a, a full map here so you can kind of see. Obviously, it begins there in Antioch. That kind of serves as the launch point. This is another interesting fact about the church at Antioch. It's a mission-sending church. It's a missionary-sending-out kind of church. That's, that's what they do. And so that becomes home base for the Apostle Paul. And they obviously, they go to the, the port in Seleucia. They head over to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And you have the record there of them spending time in Salamis and Paphos. And then they make their way over to... Um, uh, Perga, you have that mentioned in Pamphylia. You see them going up to Antioch of Pisidia. This is another thing to kind of reference, uh, have as a reference point. There's two Antiochs that you see referenced in Scripture. There's Antioch and Pisidia, which is there in Asia Minor, sort of the top middle there. That's obviously a different Antioch than the Antioch of Syria. This is in the, the Roman province of Syria, which is now modern-day Turkey. That's where Antioch is now. But, um, but you have also Antioch of Pisidia as one of the stop points. You have Iconium, you have Derby, you have Lystra. Um, he, he kind of, they kind of made their way through there and then made their way back through on the way back before they came from uh, the port there in Italia and went back over to Antioch. So you can kind of see this. They, they kind of made a U-turn there um, in Derby and went back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, and back down toward the coast. And then rather than going back to Cyprus, they made their way back over to Antioch of Syria. That's kind of the route that they took, um, and so it covered a, a fairly large geographic region. But these are the churches in Asia Minor. You see that reference point there in the middle to Galatia. So what do we know about that other than the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians? So the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians really is a letter to be circulated to all these churches in this region. And what we'll see taking place in, 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 as we move forward in the narrative here in Acts is you have some some men, some Jews, who go into this region. And, and some, some commentators believe that they just followed Paul and Barnabas into Asia Minor and began to teach that you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses as well as have belief in Christ in order to be saved. And that was what prompted the Apostle Paul to write to the Galatians about this very doctrinal issue. 
But that just kind of gives you the geography there, and I kind of frame that up in your mind. This is, this is where the Apostle Paul went, and this is where the Jews, some of the Jews, they weren't appointed by the Sanhedrin or anything. They just, of their own accord, they were sort of a, a, the party of the circumcision is what they're called. And they took it upon themselves to, to follow them into, into, these, into this region and really began to corrupt the gospel with a, a, a gospel through Christ plus, plus law, plus, plus works. Now, if you think about that in light of the broader sweep of church history, this becomes a major touch point, a major point of ongoing routine controversy in the life and the history of the church, a major point of doctrinal dispute, is really what is the heart and nature of the gospel? What is it? And so we're going to see that all throughout church history. You're going to you see that in the Reformation period for sure, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. What is the nature and extent and heart of the gospel? When we get to Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, that's what's at stake. What is the gospel? And so getting the gospel right and not adding to it or taking away from it is a critically important matter for the church. Always has been and always will be. Defending the gospel, standing up for the gospel, clearly articulating the gospel, fully understanding the gospel, teaching the gospel to other people clearly. Very important point because that is the heart of the assault that comes against it. Is let's, let's dilute, take away from, or add to the saving message of the gospel. That is what takes place in the life of the church at this particular time and all throughout church history. This becomes a, a key point of contention. Well, there's quite a bit more that we're probably going to talk about. There's some other things that I want to highlight in this first missionary journey that I think are important principles for us that we'll look at uh, next time. We know, for example, that uh, the Apostle Paul knew that his calling would entail suffering and persecution. And there's a reference point in this particular journey about that. There's also reference points that highlight the sovereignty of God and salvation and how God works in the hearts and lives of men and women to bring them to faith in Christ. So we'll kind of touch on that a little bit too as, as a doctrinal point in this first missionary journey uh, before we move on and head into Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. All right, I'm going to inhale and exhale a little bit. Anybody have any final thoughts, questions before we close in prayer? Are those Antiochs still there? Yeah, the Antioch in, um, I'm not sure about Antioch in Pisidia. That's a good question about that one. But the Antioch in Turkey is still there, but it's, it's a much less significant place. I mean, it, it, in terms of its size and scope and its influence. At that particular time, it was a, a very big cultural center. It was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire at that particular time, behind Rome and Alexandria. So you had Rome in, in Italy, and you had Alexandria in Egypt, and then you had Antioch. So it was a, it was a major, major hub. It was, a, it was a central point for all different types of religions. There was a fairly large Jewish population there, but obviously a huge population of, of Romans and Greeks and those who worshipped false gods, and um, a big cultural center, a big center of commerce. It was a major hub city, but it's no longer that. Not, not anything like what it, what it was. So... All right. Well, I will close us in prayer and we'll continue our journey next week.